This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hello, everyone. This is Matthew Krauss, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer Matt Tequeu. Matt lives and works in Los Angeles, and he's played on hundreds of recordings and thousands of live concerts all over the world throughout the years. He has a fascinating story that you'll hear in this podcast. You can also find Matt in the house band for a Netflix documentary that Jacob Dylan hosts. It's called Echoes in the Canyon. It covers a lot of the great music that was coming out of Southern California in the mid-60s. You can see Matt working live and in the studio with people like Cat Power, Brian Wilson, Nora Jones, Beck, Regina Spector, and Fiona Apple. Along with the documentary, of course, Matt... Along with the documentary, of course, Matt stays very busy with many different people in Southern California and around the country, including up-and-coming artist Sam Morrow. Big thank you goes out to listener Michael Collins. Michael is also a drummer and musician that lives in Southern California. He is from the St. Louis area where Matt Takeu is from, and Michael introduced us to Matt and the work that Matt is involved in. So big thanks to Michael for that. Friend of the podcast, Brian Stevens, has produced some exclusive content for our Patreon page. He put together a 50-minute video, a great tutorial on preparing to record and how to analyze your recording chops. I encourage you to check out our Patreon page. For even as little as a dollar, you can access the video and the bonus content that's on there. And like I said, most recently is Brian Stevens' 50-minute video that is just so well-produced and well-done, and we thank Brian for, for doing that. Here's a review from iTunes from Aaron. Great podcast with some top-notch interviewers who pull information and inspiring information from some amazing drummers. Thank you. Aaron, thanks so much for that. We really appreciate that and hope that word of mouth helps us grow, but also these ratings and review really help spread the word. As always, you can find us at workingdrummer.net to find out more information about this episode and all the episodes that we've done so far in the last three and a half years. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us now on YouTube. We are slowly building our library of past episodes. So here you go, my conversation with Matt Tequeu. I want to do a shout out to Michael Collins for connecting us. Uh, he reached out to me and uh, mentioned you. And Hell yeah, that, he's an old homeboy from St. Louis. I mean, uh, we used to play in bands uh, in St. Louis, so that's how we've known each other for a long time. We, we're not super close, but we've right. kept in touch over the years. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really great. We've been doing the podcast for about four years now, and we're starting to get, well, in the last couple of years, we've been getting people to reach out to us and say, hey, I think you should interview this person, or... And I love it that Michael, who's a listener and has responded to some of the things that we've been doing, uh, says, hey, and I'm like, well, gosh, I can't, like, it's this is for our listeners. So if Well, I, if we're going to shout out to Michael, I, I just want to put on record that he's a phenomenal drummer. That's great, man. I love to hear yeah. that. I've seen a yeah, little bit of video. He's a phenomenal drummer. I, I'm actually, I, I see his, I follow his Instagram, and he's always practicing. And it's just something I rarely do anymore, not to that degree. Yeah. You know? And and I so I admire his tenacity to just keep at it. And, 
you know, we're talking like the basics, the stick control stuff and, you know, independent stuff and just really breaking it down. And uh, I see him at, at, on his lunch break in the parking lot in a little practice pad kit, like just working it out. I'm like, good for you, man. Like, because it, it, that kind of stuff shows results. I mean, and uh, so I don't know. I just kind of envy his dedication to it because I don't do it as much anymore. Not like that. You know, luckily I, I work a lot, so I do play all the time, but yeah, uh, that's a different kind of, uh, uh, workout than just breaking it down alone. You know, it is. And it, it is interesting. There's a, there's a couple of players here in Nashville, a couple of great, great players that we're having this conversation. Cause one, one guy likes to practice a lot. Another guy is like, dude, I never practice. You know, I, you know, I've been fooling the scene for so long and I, and I, I think that's been a, a curious conversation as of late because I'm kind of in that camp that when I have time to practice, I really like to try and work things out if I'm not busy. If I am busy, that is the best thing for me. But so yeah, to me, it's almost like yoga or meditation. It's it's a solitary practice thing. You're focused on things that you don't have time to focus on when you're in the gig, you know. Right. And, uh, and so I, I was, cause when you're in the gig, you're serving the song yes. and the artists and, and the musicians around you, you know? And so, uh, yeah, it, it's just something beneficial that I, when I was a young musician starting out, my goal was to be the best. I think that's a fine goal for any young person doing whatever they want to do. Um, over the years it's shifted to I'm not trying to sound to sound like the best drummer anymore. I'm more I realize my job is a uh, it's a team sport playing music and <laughs> yeah. uh, it's an it's an accompanying instrument uh, meaning like there's guys that are amazing soloists and the YouTube is full of them. I mean a, a, a third of my age uh, right. I see these kids just doing things that I can't not only can I d not do, but I can't even imagine, you know, uh, so, <laughs> but here's the thing. Those guys don't do what I like to do. They don't work. And, uh, I've never been paid to do a drum solo. I've been asked, but I hate to do it. I mean, I like to solo in the context of, uh, accompanying something, but right. I hate the idea of the band walking off stage and I go, and as a young drummer, I, I would do that in the club bands i was in coming up in st louis and i realized real quick that nobody cares they're they're drinking they're partying the audience i mean and they they just want to get to that point in the solo where i'm hitting everything really hard really fast right and it felt more like sports or a magic trick than it did music to me mm -hmm. so i prefer my goal now it's shifted and it's to make the musicians around me sound as good as they can doing what they're doing. Meaning I'm an accompanist. Like I, uh, uh, I'm the only instrument that's not playing notes per se. I mean, you can, of course you tune your drums to the relative pitch that you want, but mostly I'm tuning my drums to where the drums that I'm working with sound best. You know, some drums sound good tuned up high, some sound good tuned up low. And then depending on the kind of music, but really, it's to make the guy doing what he's doing next to me sound as good as he can by uh, accompanying him, you know. So 
I'm not really into the drums as much as I am the song. You know? Yeah, so I the, love that. I love that idea. Drums are like the vehicle I use to find my place in the song. You know, I look at a song like, it's like a scene in a movie. And uh, it, I'm like the lighting special effects guy. So, like, it, is this scene a love scene? where I, I need like, you know, shadows and light and smoke machines and, or do, is it like an action adventure scene where it needs a lot of explosions and, you know, bright lights and, you know, so I'm the guy providing like the textures for whatever the melody is doing in the mood. I mean, I always look at music as music is what feelings sound like. And so I'm just providing kind of emotional support, you know, as well as what, you would think a drummer would do like keep time, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm also providing texture and kind of shading and light for the emotion that the song's trying to get across. You know, have you always thought this way or was there a point in your life when you kind of had this epiphany? It wasn't like a, you know, like a light bulb moment. It was more just you work with enough artists over time. I mean, I've worked with hundreds of artists hundreds of recordings and thousands of shows so mm -hmm. it's it, everybody requires something different so the best that you can do when especially when joining a new gig is to uh especially if it's a singer gig you know what i mean like everybody right. sings but there are certain gigs where like no you are backing a singer it's he or she's baby that you're holding and you have to be very precious with it and read their cues. They don't want to, you don't want them to have to think and turn around and tell you what to do in the middle of a song. Like you read the body language. Uh, you, you just kind of have to really have your antenna up really high to, uh, because I, I also look at the drums are kind of like the conductor of the bands. When I say band, I mean like, you know, four five, six piece yeah. rock or the, something thereof, you know, folk, country, funk, whatever. But uh, you know, you're on a, a medium-sized stage most times, and you're just trying to read that environment and give them what they need to do what they want to do. Right, know? right, right. Make them feel as comfortable. I, I, I've had people say to me, uh, singers uh, say, um, you know, there's times that please take this the right way. There's times I don't even know that you're back there. And good. Yeah, right. And I said good, but and I, I I have to you know back this up with the idea that I'm not a fancy player, so I try and say this as humbly as possible that I like that compliment. Yeah, me me yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, fancy. I, mean, I I don't really have an opinion on fancy or you know simple or complicated. It to mm -hmm. me, every situation has different requirements. Sure. So, like when I started out, I was a big fan of like Mitch Mitchell, who's just like bombasting all over the place <laughs> while Hendrix is playing. And then I love guys like Bill Bruford because I couldn't air drum to him because he kept turning the beat around and right. doing, <laughs> coming up with crazy concepts within you know a couple bars of music. It's like, whoa, he's going on his own thing that's going against the thing he's playing to, but it's supporting it at the same. So, you know, but then I also am such a fan of, uh, uh, you know, the, the soul stuff, Motown, Stax, like those guys accompany a groove like like nothing. I mean, they they hold the whole thing up, you know, and that's more what I'm into is like growing up in St. Louis. I mean, I'm a white guy. But there's a large African-American population. And my goal was I, I wanted to be 
an old black guy, (laughs) (laughs) not, not a black guy, just like these old guys, you know, like the guys that would just sit on this front stoop, the music they listened to, the way they talk, the way they walk, the style. It was just something that was just fascinating to me and musically as well. So those guys, and you know, when once I heard the meters from New Orleans, you know, Zigaboo's playing, that was like, that's what I've been looking for. Like that kind of playing so wrong that it's right or, or you know that that's kind of my goal in music is like playing the wrong shit in the right way if you can find that then you're doing something unique and it doesn't matter if it's complicated or super simple you know like al jackson jr and stacks records that's super simple drumming but try to sound like that you know what i mean nobody can I think that's the thing that I've noticed uh, watching and listening to you over the last couple of weeks is that there is a style of music that you're playing that could be in the box of simple. And yet, as I'm hearing what you're bringing to the table, I hear a certain complexity, especially your touch and tone, especially in your left hand or on your snare drum where I'm, I'm hearing something that propels this forward that that adds more to the groove and the shape of the groove than just two and four eighth notes on the hi-hat one and three on the kick drum there's something yeah. in there that as you're as you're telling me your influences i'm like yes that's that's what i'm hearing well i'm glad you said the word tone because mm-hmm. that's something i think a lot of these young drummers are lacking the, you know, when I see things like, and, and I watch them, I'm a fan, like watching, say, the Guitar Center drum offs. Yeah. These kids are doing things that, like, I, I, there's no way in my lifetime, because I, I know what it takes to get that kind of mm-hmm. dexterity. It mm-hmm. takes, like, practicing eight hours a day. Now, honestly, I don't want to do anything for eight hours a day, you know, so. <laughs> but, uh, but, again, a lot of those guys you don't see working. You know, I mean, they're not on records. Yeah. Uh, these guys, it, uh, what they can do is like, it's so physically impressive to me. It's like watching an amazing athlete. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't always, like I walk away from it with nothing other than my jaws on the floor. But I don't, there's not a melody that I'm carrying with me or an emotion that I'm walking away with that's going to like stick in my head for the rest of the day. It's mm-hmm. just something that impressed me like a magic trick, like like I can see his hands, but how the hell is he doing that? Like, you know, but, um, the tone, I think they're, they're kind of put in the back seat. It seems like a lot of these guys, they could be doing that on cardboard boxes and it would be no less impressive because it's what they're doing. That's impressive, but I don't hear a lot of musicality in it. Um, I mean, I'm making a generalization. I don't mean to bag on these kind of guys. But no, you know I, I th- no, I think that the idea is when we see this, it's it's just amazing and it's and it's entertaining. And I feel like there's a part of the um, I don't know what the word is, the right word is, but the music scene or the drumming scene that has carved out a niche and and online stuff and YouTube has has allowed that platform to grow. And so, yeah. you, so you're, we're getting this. Whole, other angle of of uh, of this craft that we 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 love, um, so so that's good. And again, it 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 is noble and it's it's interesting. And and I think there are people that have again created something that is that somewhat resembles a career. So not to be discounted, but at the same time, just what you said right there about 
if they played it on cardboard boxes, it would be just as impressive because it's more about what they're doing than yeah than the tone. You know, but yeah, these gospel chops guys, like you mm-hmm. know, like a guy like say, you uh, aware of a guy like Thomas Pridgen. I'm impressed by them, and I will YouTube them, and I'll see a little snippet of something. Go, ooh, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to put that in my toolbox, and then maybe one day there'll be the right moment where I can break that little thing out that I worked out that he did. You know, yeah. Um, but I, I was touring for years with a blues soul singer named Janova Magnus, and I learned a lot from that. And there's this scene, the gospel chop scene, where these guys. Uh, um, that just impressive smashing of the drums mm-hmm. and double kick all the drums that snare drums are tuned really tight, like just a hitting a crack. Like these yeah. things are loud. A lot of cymbals, a lot of splashes, like little cymbals, and they're constantly hitting cymbals. Whereas nowadays, my goal is when I'm doing most records that I, you know, when I'm in a session. I love to see how little I can hit crashes. Like uh, if I can get through an album only hitting a crash like 10 times throughout the whole album, yeah. that's uh, I'm so into that. And I've found that artists are as well. They don't even know it, but they're like, I'm so glad that it's just not crash, crash, crash. Because when you're making records, it's a whole other beast than live. I mean, live, I throw all those rules out the window and it's just you be in the moment and you read the moment. And you play to the room. Every stage sounds different. Every hall sounds different. Every space, every PA. So you learn quickly to adapt to what's going on. Or if I'm in uh, on tour and I'm playing festivals, they'll provide a backline. Usually it's some kind of Yamaha Pearl DW situation. Yeah. And and I have to quickly learn that kit. And so these guys, I found that they were kind of ruining a traditional old style of music, which is blues R and B, which kind of had its heyday in the fifties, sixties, seventies. And they're smashing, smashing, doing all this contemporary crazy stuff. That's really impressive. And from a drummer's point of view, it's like great drumming. Yeah. But the song suffers because <laughs> you're just smashing all over it. Right. You know? Right. And so I try to go the opposite way. And, and like, when you talk about tone and stuff, I look at a guy like Levon Helm. I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. It's so it's like a massage listening to him drum, you know, <laughs> and, and and Bernard Purdy. I mean, it's like, or I'd mention Al Jackson and and Ringo. Man, uh, every once in a while, you will see like Modern Drummer, one of these magazines, put up something about Ringo, uh, like the top ten drummers in the world and history or whatever. And yeah. Ringo's always up there, and I'm always amazed. And I will make the mistake of getting into it with these guys about debating Ringo because so many drummer drummers like these guys that want to be like athletes right right they love guys like Thomas Lang and all these guys that you see online all the time giving instructional videos and they and they look at a guy like Ringo and they just bag on him and I'm saying you don't get it man like Ringo's very sophisticated at what he did he's a master and I can't think of another drummer whose drum tracks have changed the world more than Ringo. Oh my gosh, yes. And a, and a master of tone and probably influenced more drummers to pick up sticks than any other drummer in history. And that includes Buddy Rich and all of them. Like when, when the Beatles hit Ed Sullivan, Ludwig said, we've never sold more kits in that following year Yeah, in our whole history as a company because everybody wanted to put a kit in their garage and, and 
be Ringo. You know, and so I, I like don't misunderstand Ringo's artistry. It's like it's it, people are like he can't even do it. You know, he's he can't even do like a double stroke roll or whatever. I'm like, it doesn't matter, man. Like he played the right shit. Mm-hmm. That is one one quarter of the sound of the most like influential band in modern recorded music history. You know, so it's, it's so amazing. You know, it's so funny you talk about symbols and the not using too much. Uh, there was a couple times when I had this epiphany listening to Ringo, and it's like he's not even playing hi hat on this. There's no yeah. there's no timekeeping device that he's playing, and there's just this well, groove. That's another thing that I want to give props to Ringo for. That I that I this is a huge lesson for me mm-hmm. is um, strategy. When I listen to a musician play, we talked about the guys that are physically impressive and all that, but I'm also listening to their ideas, yeah. not just their tone and their dexterity, but their ideas. And Ringo had great ideas. Like one of my favorite drum tracks is uh, "In My Life," yeah, uh, it, which is kind of a ballad. And it's not really considered a drummy drum song, um, mm-hmm. but what he does is so so clever. Just the way he comes up with these patterns, like the verse pattern, the pre-chorus pattern, the chorus pattern. It's like it's so crafty. Like wow, man, for a young guy, and they were young at the time when they were oh my doing gosh, that. Like, yes. for for a guy in his young twenties to do something that kind of restrained and just perfect for this amazing song that these that his bandmates wrote, you know, I'm like, man, that's, that's masterful. You know, I think when I first moved to Nashville about 20 years ago, I was so overwhelmed with the talent and the recording chops that a lot of these people had. And I thought, how am I ever going to compete? What, what is going on that makes these players so busy? And it, it kind of has to do a lot with what you're talking about right now. It's not this explosive chops fest. It's, the ideas now obviously there's groove there's pocket there's execution there's tone there's all those things but i found that some of the busiest players that i got to know and have been getting to know have been these players that have a an idea that adds so much to the song even if it's even if it just happens one time by busy you mean work a lot Yes, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> Not busy around the kit, but busy around town. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that they, as Chad Cromwell is a great example of somebody who played with Neil Young and, you know, ha- had, yep. had these things that he would do in maybe once or twice in a song. And you're like, oh my gosh, if I play this song, I have to do that lick that Chad does because it's almost like the drum fill in, in the air tonight. You can't not play that song without playing that phil collins drum fill it's it's a part of the song um and there's so many well that's what i mean about ringo like guys like they compose drum parts that are crucial to the arrangement like they're it's not just a flashy thing he's doing to like flex muscles it's like no this is crucial to the arrangement it's part of it it's musical you know it's fascinating to listen to abe laboreal jr over the last many years play with Paul. So great. Oh, yeah, so great. love him to death. And him interpreting or copying parts that those essential uh, Ringo parts. Um, I agree, man. I, and I've been fortunate enough to work with the other band members like Brian Ray and yeah. Rusty, the two guitar players, because they're, they're all local. Brian just lives down the street. So 
I've I've done a uh, and I played on Rusty's album, Rusty Anderson, his other guitar player. Uh, but Abe, yeah, I I think it's the best live band McCartney's ever had since the Beatles. I agree, and and I think they do a great job of interpreting and also kicking it up a notch. And also, they're such super fans of Paul's and so respectful yeah. that he feels comfortable enough when they start to beg. Like Brian told me, he wanted to do. Um, Oh, what was it? Uh, I don't know. One of the Wings songs that he, Paul hadn't done in a long time. Uh-huh. Um, uh, hold on, uh, Junior's Farm. That's what it was. Oh wow! <laughs> and and not not like a huge huge hit. At least not anymore. You, know, yeah. you don't hear it on the radio. And but they were such as a band. They were like, yeah, but it rocks. Can we do it? Mm-hmm. And Paul's like, really? It's like the silliest, simple, like, you know, he didn't think much of the lyrics because they were, sometimes Paul would just do silly lyrics, yeah. uh, you know, uh, and they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they started doing it in soundcheck and, and Paul was like, hey, you're right. This, this rocks. It's, it's in the set now. So things like that and, and, and watching Abe uh, do his thing, he's so respectful to Ringo's parts. Yeah. As as well as bringing his own thing. Same with um, uh, Ringo's kid, Zach Starkey. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, in with the Who. He's, yeah, he's he's really um, respectful to to what Keith Moon did, but at the same time, he's bringing his own stank to it. You know, yeah, it's cool. It it, it is it is amazing. Tell me about. Uh, you say next week is a busy week for you. So what's coming up for you? Like, what's the current news for you? Um, well, next week I'm, uh, scheduled to go and do a three day session with an artist. I still don't know his name. <laughs> I just heard, I heard it was along the lines of, uh, the band squeeze that kind of approach. Nice. And I love squeeze. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I love squeeze XTC and anything that the Beatles influenced. You sure. know? <laughs> and, and in that eighties, uh, time that, that was what I was listening to that and the clash and Elvis Costello. I mean, that's one of my favorite drummers of all time. Uh, uh Pete Thomas from Elvis. Oh, Costello oh right, right. Attractions. Okay. Sure. Anyway. So I'm doing a three day session there with producer Dave Darling. That's all I know about that. Um, uh, I'm doing a gig at night, uh, the movie Echo in the Canyon and the album that I played on yeah. with all these, you know, with all the sixties music from that mid late sixties, uh, Southern California folk rock sound, um, we're, uh, award seasons coming up. So we're, we've submitted to the Grammys, the Oscars, cause it is a movie and an album. Right. And, uh, we're doing some, uh, some awards show, you know, there's smaller award shows leading up to awards season. The big ones that happen in like usually December, January, February, there's ones that lead up to it. And this is one in Hollywood at the Avalon theater for something, I think celebrating music and film. And so we've been booked to to do a play, a song with the echo and the Canyon band, which is Jacob Dylan, Whoever else is around as far as guest stars, we've worked with Cat Power and Jade Castrinos and, you know, uh, Stephen Stills and Roger McGuinn and, you know, it depends who's there. And, uh, but we're, I heard we're just going to do one song as a part of this award show. And then I'm prepping for, uh, there's this artist kind of, um, it's a gig with different songwriters called Top Tune. 
and uh, songwriters get together. They match them up, songwriter to songwriter. They give them 20 minutes to write a song. Then they come out and they have a house band. And so I'm the guy who will accompany. So I got to learn all these music cues because it's a live show. And uh, and then I got to learn these artists' songs. And then I got to accompany a, a song that they just wrote. So, you know, that that will be my week next week. So it's almost like a session mode when you're learning the song that they just wrote. So I'm guessing that the session is a situation where you go in, you listen to the demo, or you listen to them sitting down with an acoustic guitar. Is that fair They to leave say? the room and write, and then they come back, and they okay. play the song, and we just kind of fall in. And, and that's kind of like hit or miss, and the gotcha. whole thing is videoed. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like a session. When I a lot of sessions, and I kind of prefer to do sessions these way, this way is no preparation. You come in, you get the song. You might get the charts ahead of time. Yeah, but the charts is charts is just a roadmap. I mean, I can read charts, I can read music, but I usually will make my own chart on the spot, and it's usually just this kind of scratched out roadmap for mm -hmm. a drummer mm -hmm. you know because i don't need to know what key it's in you know right. things like that i just don't and so uh yeah it's that kind of but I, I love working like that i think that's when i end up playing my best stuff and i say that just knowing that i listened back to it like months or years later and go oh that was really good but at the time i had no idea what i was doing Whereas the times when I have a lot of time to prepare and a lot of pressure to be great, that's when I'm often not. <laughs> I, I, I know. It, it, it's, I think we fall into uh, something that's unknown and, and impulsive and you're, being, you're reacting to the music in the moment when you're, when, you're, when you're unprepared. And I think sometimes you surprise yourself. These days you'll get like, I'll get called for sessions and sometimes with the technology the way it is, the songwriter's not even in the same city. Right. The song, the song isn't even finished being written. So I'm accompanying loops or uh, drum machine beats or, or something. I'm accompanying pieces of music, and they assemble it later. And then a couple months down the line, I get a track emailed to me. And I'd be like, that's a great song, but... And that's me on drums, but I've never even heard that song before. Like they literally <laughs> created it after the fact. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, are you using house kits a lot, or or having bringing in your own kit when you're doing sessions? Yeah, I'm not a super gear guy, first of all. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I mean, I am, and I I'm not. I'm, I, meaning, I know people that are really into the new shiny mm -hmm. high tech. Mm -hmm. They own multiple kits, and this, and you know. And, uh, and that's cool, but I'm just as inclined to, you know, go out in the alley behind a studio and put a microphone inside the dumpster and <laughs> kick the dumpster for the bass drum of that song. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like drag something out of the trash, uh, you know, put a brush in one hand, a mallet in the other, put a ribbon mic in front of it, position it right in the room. And, Cause that way you end up listening back to the track and going, that's a really cool drum track what is that? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it doesn't have to be, I don't change heads a lot. I have a head endorsement and I barely use it. Um, what's your, I like, what's your favorite brand of dumpster? I mean, just, we put that on your endorsement <laughs> list. <laughs> well, I'm just saying I did it once. Okay. And, and I, it was like, <laughs> okay. it, it totally worked. Cause it was just this big boom, 
was these sub lows and yeah and uh and it was a track that had just kind of light stuff on top like brushes so you have this high frequency of the brushes or hot rods kind of stick bundles and then this like sub low kick and of course it wasn't a super active kick pattern it was just like anchoring the one or something sure and it just gave it this creepy Tom Waitsy vibe. You know, guys like Tom Waits, like we're talking about like ideas. Those are great ideas. You know what I mean? It's not about, oh, he did a double parallel on the hi-hat. The th- you know, it's like, who cares? It's more about the emotional impact it's having because it's, uh, well, I, like I was talking about lighting and shading. It's, it's yeah, you're yeah. watching a movie scene and you're emotionally invested in it. And, and as a drummer, it's like I'm a character actor. It's like, okay, what's the scene? I got to get into character for this, you know? And sometimes I want to do jumping jacks before track. Sometimes I want to do the exact opposite, almost be falling asleep during the track, you know? It just depends on what I'm trying to convey emotionally. Interesting. Know, like, like what's his name? Phil Spector. I heard used to get these, you know, whole giant bands, orchestra, strings, horns, you know, the, the wrecking crew, put them in a giant room and work them like crazy. And then by the end of the day, they'd done like 40 takes, mm-hmm. 50 takes. Mm-hmm. And he would use that last take because everybody was just exhausted. They're beyond the point of thinking they're not aware. They're just playing it. And that was the that was the sound he was going for, you know. And I respect that kind of pursuit, anyway. I've heard that about Mutt Lang as well, doing those kinds yeah, of things. Mutt Lang's insane. <laughs> I, it's interesting going back to ideas that you're talking about. Sometimes not necessarily an idea that's executed, but an idea that's discovered when you use a tone, when you use, uh, say, uh, a less than conventional instrument. Uh, you know, anything, just discovering different things around the studio or out in the alley, that itself can be considered an idea that the artist, the producer, the engineer sees in you bringing to the table. Oh, absolutely. That's what I try to do. That I want to get hired for my ideas more than my chops. Uh, definitely. I mean, I want to put that down on record because there's my chops these days, <laughs> it depends. It depends what kind of chops you're talking about. If you're talking about my young man chops, no, they're totally failing now. Like I can't do a single stroke roll really fast to save my life. I mean, if my life depended on it, I couldn't pull it off. But I, I'm much better at going into an environment and coming up with something and having the confidence and the creativity to kind of like, I don't know, make it my sound like the matt techie sound whatever that is for better or worse you know i mean i do feel that chemistry is a big thing just like jim keltner's a great drummer lars Ulrich's a great drummer but you wouldn't want to switch them on the gig you know they're just uh, you know jim keltner would be lousy with metallica that's not what metallica needs you know so you know but but if i'm in the right environment that's what i want to get hired for like coming up with stuff And, and like i did an album last month with this great singer songwriter this is the third album i've done with him his name's um sam morrow and yeah. it's kind of kind of outlaw country kind of stuff yeah and the new album's in the can it'll be out like in february but when i'm with sam the quickest way because we move fast in the session and he comes in very unprepared meaning he's just singing gibberish scratch vocals but he has the riffs and the changes and he has the song more or less but he kind of relies on the 
team he assembled to kind of finish it with him. Mm-hmm. So we all have free input and, and which is right there a skill because you don't want to do too much because if then you're taken over and then you're, nobody likes that guy, you know? So, right, right. So what I do is I bring a stack of snares, a stack of assorted symbols. And when he plays me the groove, I, I instantly try to go off my instincts. I got to trust my instincts um, because they're much better. They have much better track record than when I've thought it out and belabored an idea. I just been lucky that way. Like mm-hmm. my first instincts, usually the best. And so I will He's like, okay, I hear a thing. And I like song references like, Oh, I, I hear kind of like a Bowie snare sound or like a, you know, uh, you know, an Elvis Presley ride symbol on, you know, so we use that. We speak in that language of references and, um, cause they're also emotional references too. Hmm. Like that ride symbol can bring a Elvis emotion, you know, <laughs> or I, I want to leave on helm snare and, you know, and, so I, that's the quickest way to change the whole sound of a kit is to change up the ride and change up the snare. Interesting. And, uh, without, without having to put up a whole kit. I mean, sometimes you want a big, giant, 28-inch, double-headed uh, bass drum sound with a wool beater just to have a big marching band thing. But usually I, I do the standard 22-inch kick drum. It's, I'm not like fancy like that and so the quickest way to get a variety of emotions is i grab a bunch of toys like whatever's in the studio or whatever i brought so i'll do something like okay we're going to throw a tambourine on the floor tom and i'm going to hit it with my right hand with the mallet and then i'm going to put a bongo on the snare drum and i'm going to hit that with a brush mm-hmm. and then i'm going to put a tambourine on the hi-hat so what you have is this kind of like texture the sound that's like, oh, it all, instantly it gives a song a character or an attitude or personality. And then the next song might be totally straight ahead. Like, I want it to be like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I just want a four-piece kit, hit really hard, solid, clear, precise, mm-hmm. you know, without any muddled up jingle jangle stuff. And, uh, you know, and if so, we'll do that as an overdub kind of thing. Um, but I like to try to see what I can get get away with live on the kit and try not to do too many overdubs unless it's like, you know, a conga part or something. It's like I can't play the kit and the conga at the same time. But it sounds uh, like a Keltner philosophy, though. Oh, totally. I mean, that guy, that guy is a Zen Buddha master. I mean, <laughs> I've never met the man, but like uh, I've heard so many stories of people. I don't meet a lot of famous drummers because we're never on the gig at the same time, unless it's a festival kind of situation or a party situation, which I, I don't really do that anymore. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I've hear, heard stories where Jim has laid down a track and then he says before he's done, dim the lights put up this ribbon mic in the middle of the room and he goes out there with a chair and sits and puts a egg shaker in each hand and lays down an egg shaker track and, <laughs> and everybody in the studio just starts weeping. It's so like amazingly profound. You know, <laughs> I love stories like that. Yeah. That's, that's a guy who has great instincts of like, wow, man, he'll just, he'll make it spooky. You know, I, I, uh, I was talking with T-Bone Burnett, and he's like that. He likes to do spooky kind of stuff, and he'll assemble a musician. Or D. 
Daniel Lanois. I've worked with Daniel Lanois. Right, right. And Daniel is a guy who, um, anytime I've done a session at his place, he'll be like, don't bring anything. <laughs> he will He will set the scene. He's like, just bring your sticks. Yeah. And uh, I show up and he's got a kit set up. And, you know, one day it's a kit set up like a 1950s Slingerland or something like beautiful. And we play and we play live with no headphones on and he captures it. And, and you, you know, you got to remember, this is a guy with who changed U2's career. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff you heard on some of their big records was literally their guitar player, The Edge's um, cassette demos that he made in his kitchen. And Daniel would be like, yeah, that's the basis of the track, meaning we're not going to re-record that. We're going to use that actual mini cassette I recording. didn't know that. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, so there's buried in these lush, beautiful-sounding Daniel Lanois tracks are usually some lo-fi shit that just, mm -hmm. you know, that he he liked the message it was conveying. And so uh, another time I went over to his house, and he cleared all the furniture out of his living room you know, in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. And it's this big kind of, uh, it's like an Italian villa-type mansion-type place. And he cleared all the... <laughs> The furniture out of his living room, and there in the middle of the room was a old, like 1940s ribbon mic. And the instruction for that day was we're going to record a song um, with my old band, Mother Superior. We were we did our own music. We backed up Daniel and Juan. We were also the Rollins band, so we right. covered a lot of musical ground. Yeah, yeah. But but with this, it was like we're going to record like they used to the whole band with one mic, which meant to mix, there is no mixing to mix. It's the proximity to the mic. So for instance, Jim, the singer would be three feet away from the mic, yeah. uh, singing, uh, strumming electric guitar. Now his little tweed fender amp was like eight feet away from the mic. Um, and I would be like, 15 feet away from the mic with a kick and snare and brushes. And so, it, and then, and then in another room is his engineer saying, yeah, the drums need to move up a foot, you know, that, that kind of <laughs> stuff. So I love, you know, working with guys like that, that are just get weird and try to capture the weirdness on tape because once it's there, then it's there forever. And you're like, wow, it's cool to know there's a story behind it, you know? The way I play is uh, I know that if I'm not crashing, crashing, that they're uh, probably going to get a lot more use out of the, uh, or at least option to use the room mics. You're going to be able to, because if you're going to compress something, I love compression. And if you're going to compress something and there's a lot of symbols on there, the symbols come up to the front of the mix and it's just annoying. It gives you a headache. But if you're leaving a lot of space and air in the sound and using crashes sparingly, then you're, it's a lot easier to use compression to uh, uh, just give it that quality that it has, that kind of old-timey quality. And I love doing stuff like that. Also, as a young man, you uh, hard means loud, soft means quiet. And... Once you do this a lot, you realize it's not always true. Like so, you hit the drum to where it sounds good mm -hmm. in the, in the context you're doing, and some oftentimes playing the drums softly can have a huge sound on the recording. You know, 
it just depends what you're going for. It's you're trying to hit that sweet spot like a snare drum. Like, for instance, like I said, uh, my chops kind of suck, but at the same time, I'm really good at getting about 20 to 30 different tones out of one drum mm -hmm. with the same stick. Mm -hmm. You know, I know how to, I know how to do that. Like how the little ghost note things, the cross stick things, the flat stick, the tip, tip of the stick, you know, the, where you hit it on the head, I will move around. I'll play with it. To me, it's, I'm getting paid to, to play. I mean, you know, you're, you're supposed to have fun. Like it's the one place in my life as a middle-aged adult where I get to, um, play like a little, like I did when I was a little kid. I've discovered recently that there's a there's a five and a half uh, copper drum that I've been using or a brass drum that I've been using for the last year, and sometimes when I want it louder, I keep cranking it up on a live gig, and I've discovered that man, if I just hit it right and and tune it down a little bit, I get a longer sound and a bigger sound yeah. from this this particular drum. But it's Again, it goes back to that idea where you're talking about harder, louder, uh, softer. Uh, that that whole concept doesn't always apply. No, not at all. And, yeah, and, and you were talking about tuning the snare drum. Sometimes you ever played a gig and all of a sudden your snare drum just sounds really good. Yeah. And you find out later that one of your lugs unscrewed right. and it was just dead <laughs> but for that particular particular stage and room and drum riser and band and whatever that 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 environment it sounded really fucking good mm -hmm. you know like that that i love that kind of so i used to i started out as a young man because i had really shitty gear but i was cranking up the snare drum because i loved Stuart copeland and the crack he got out of a snare <laughs> right right then to find out years later that really he didn't always tune it up really tight. He just hit that way, you know, yeah, yeah. where, I mean, I love drummers that have such a personality that in two strokes, I can tell who it is, right, you know, right. if I hear Stuart Copeland flam twice, I'm like, that's Stuart Copeland, like, <laughs> because he doesn't flam like, like as a flam is written, the ghost note is before the note. Yeah. He's... Sometimes he will do the ghost note after the note. So it's almost like it sounds like you have a delay on the snare, like uh, a little doubler, you know. Oh, so that's it's, interesting. It's yeah. like it's like an echo, but but mm -hmm. as as opposed to the other way, where the ghost note is leading into the actual note that you're trying to, yeah, you know, that's on the beat, and so things like that, the personality of it all. But but yeah, I used to tune my snare up super tight, and now I've been noticing that it sounds so cool. To have uh, oftentimes the uh, snares so loose that they're kind of rattling underneath, and it just gives it a totally different. It gives it a fatness when you actually crack the drum. It's like, whoa! It sounds like a wallop, and uh, and, and it almost adds like uh, it almost sounds like there's a reverb on it. It's, you know, it's that, so that, cool. Yeah, my, but, you know, even though that it's there hasn't been reverb put on it yet, you know. So <laughs> these things are just little studio tricks you learn about. Of course, on stage you got to fly by the seat of your pants, and you just want to get the kit sounding great, and then 
it's like off to the races. Ready? Go. See at the finish line. Right, right. And, you know, you're in survival mode. You're in combat mode. It's like, you know, don't get taken out and survive the gig and then high five after, you know. But uh, with, with sessions, you get to really kind of get more strategic and take your time and try things. And like, let's, let's do, like I said, do the wrong thing in, you know, in, in a cool way. My wife had a uh, old Yamaha student line drum that she had in middle school, and I, uh, of course, that became part of my arsenal. And I would throw a calfskin head on it and use it for brushes. And it was just a cheap student line drum. And eventually, I, I just put a regular head on it and and started messing with it. I'm like, man, this drum sounds really good. And then uh, a lug broke, and it just it never it just I don't know that swivel nut in there stripped out right by where I was smacking it but it sounded better and every time yeah. i changed a head out that one lug would never tune and man i fell up well then more and more lugs i think i've got four or five broken on there now and i i just i want to i want to get it back up to speed again because i miss it so much and but that added character to it and i used it a lot for about a year and a half before it just completely died um oh. <laughs> You killed it. I did. I found it. It would be more. It would be cheaper for me to buy a brand new one and just use the parts, but with shipping and everything. But anyways, yeah. But I love the story. The part of the fever story I love is the process of discovery of like, you know, when something breaks and all of a sudden it sounds great, or at least <laughs> has a unique quality, and you're like, well, the like in the last Sam Morrow record we did at. Um, Horse Latitude Studio, which is Robbie Krieger from the Doors studio. Okay. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And it's got a lot of gear. So it's got this great Camco kit that I use as the main kit. And then I bring I bring all my snares in. They got a bunch of snares and um you know, I one that I don't have that I really need to own is a Black Beauty. Luckily, every studio in LA has one. So Yeah. I use them a lot, but I don't own one. But what they did have was, I can't remember what brand it was because oftentimes I don't even look. I don't really care. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. that, I'm not just not, I've never been that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a wooden drum. It's like eight inches at least deep uh, snare drum. And it's one of the lugs is missing on the top. And the head is kind of weird and wrinkly, and there's another head taped to it. So it's just this wet, puffy cloud that you hit. And I beat the tar out of it, and it sounds so great as like this fat, sexy-sounding snare. Now, I wouldn't want to take it on the road because, of course, you know, by night three, you would have changed the quality of it and never get it back and all that. But when I go into that studio, I always try to put that on because I've been there and done four different records there at that studio. And I always try to put it on whatever record I'm on, at least on one song, because it's just such the seventies puffy snare sound that you hear on like, you know, uh, like a Fleetwood Mac record or something. Mm, It's just this like cushiony sounding thing, but it's, it's just, it's home base for the song. You know what I mean? It's like, it becomes such a part of the sound of the song and the attitude that I love using it, but it, no, it would not, it's very select sound. You wouldn't want to use it as your main snare, but, uh, 
Do and you, then I'll go the other way, get a little piccolo up super high and hit it with a chopstick, just a little dink, you know, that, so it's always good to change it up. Are you using different size sticks for different situations? Um, I mean, I have a stick bag full of stuff, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but I found that I can pretty much get away with anything uh, with, um, I like 5A wood tips. I just got an endorsement with this great company out of Nashville yep. called Innovative, Innovative Percussion. They're awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. And uh, that was Jimmy Paxson, the great Jimmy Paxson. Speaking of Fleetwood Mac, because he played with uh, uh, Stevie Nicks and um, Lindsey Buckingham and Dixie Chicks, and Jimmy works with a lot of people. But he turned me on to them, and I hit them up when this Echo in the Canyon thing was coming out, and they were like, great, you know. Yeah. So uh, so I got their sticks and their brushes and their their version of the hot rod stick bundles, mm-hmm. which are made out of bamboo. I don't know why nobody ever thought of that because they last 10 times longer. Yeah. You know, those, uh, what, what is it? Uh, who did the original hot rods with the red? Oh, Promark. Promark, yeah. yeah. But you know what I mean? Those are great and they feel great and sound great, but they fall apart yeah. like, instantly. Yeah. And they're not cheap. No. <laughs> so, uh, but these, uh, man, I've been using the same pair for like a bunch of sessions and it's like, they're still holding up. They haven't broke cause it's, they're made out of bamboo rods. And, uh, anyway, uh, I can usually get away with a lot with that, but I'm okay. also, I've also done things like play drums with my hands or, you know, and I got a pair of soft mallets and hard mallets cause, uh, there's nothing like a good, uh, symbol whoosh with malice soft mallets right <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean there's no percussiveness to it at all it's literally like a wave crashing over the song it's i love that shit so. that's awesome yeah innovative has been a great they've been supporters of the podcast and and they've been really cool I, i'm using some brushes coming up here oh cool in a couple of weeks uh i just i just, i think what they make is great for our listeners um can you tell me what echo in the canyon is Explain what that is, where they can find oh. it, where they can hear it, where they can see it. Okay, <laughs> cool. Yeah, well, it it is um, it is a movie uh, slash album uh, about the mid to late sixties Southern California folk rock scene, uh, specifically based out of Laurel Canyon, this area of. Uh, that at the time was very hippie, but yet just right above Sunset Strip. So you were right above the action. And uh, it was a time when um, Bob Dylan basically handed the hippies folk music and they plugged in and played it electrically. And so, for instance, Roger McGuinn with the Birds mm-hmm. did a cover of Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man and uh, with an electric 12-string Rickenbacker. And so, uh, and those bands out of that scene, um, were all influenced by the Beatles, meaning a hard day's night came out. Everybody saw it and were like, I want to do that. I want to be in a band and have the same haircuts and the same suits and run around and have, you know, hijinks and, (laughs) and, uh, a band that had multiple singers, multiple songwriters all under the same band. And so you had bands like the Birds, the Buffalo Springfield, the Mamas and the Papas, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that came out of this scene. And it's just like a two-year period because then shortly after that, it becomes 
more of an era of uh, the individual, meaning uh, Buffalo Springfield and, you know, becomes Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Like it's, it's the guy's names. It's not a, you know, a Beatles sounding, it doesn't have a, just a band name. Gotcha. And Neil Young becomes Neil Young and then mm-hmm. Joni Mitchell arrives and she's Joni Mitchell and, and, and it's a whole other scene. And that's the only criticism I've heard of the film. The, the main one is that, well, what about Joni Mitchell? It's like, yeah, it's, it's not about that. I mean, this is not a Ken Burns documentary of the history of Southern California folk rock. It's if, really if cool. It it's cool that you say that because that I, I read that too. And, and they said Joni Mitchell wasn't mentioned and The Doors wasn't mentioned. But you're talking about bands with multiple singers and uh, and band situations. Right. And, and, and of course, and then the echo from that scene, hence the echo in the Canyon title. Uh, mm-hmm. So the birds do, um, uh, do Bob Dylan songs. So the 12 star, they do folk rock electrically in a rock band Beatles like environment. The Beatles hear that. And George Harrison loves the birds and he gets his first Rickenbacker 12 string. And then he writes the song, if I needed someone and, the next Beatles album is very folk rock influence, Rubber Soul, uh, where it's like acoustic songs, acoustic electric songs. There's the 12 string. And, and then Brian Wilson hears Rubber Soul, and he gets inspired to write Pet Sounds. And then the Beatles hear Pet Sounds, and they get inspired to write Sgt. Pepper's, which is changes the recording process from then on. You know, it's, it, it's that influence continues to today so it's our little way of celebrating that little scene where it kind of burst out of in this weird little area of los angeles and it was it's written or it was made by andy slater who's a producer and manager and he was the president of capitol records in the 90s and he called me up years ago and he said, would you come over to my backyard with a few musicians and uh, I want to work out these folk songs, uh, like folk rock, uh, basically a love song. I want to put a, uh, make an album, uh, uh, kind of an ode to my heroes, my musical heroes, like Stephen Stills and David Crosby and all, all these guys, Neil Young. Like, sure, man. So, you know, when Andy calls, you're like, hell yeah, I'll be there. Mm-hmm. And, and so I get there and it's a lot of these other musicians that I play different sit-ins around town so we all kind of know each other and you know jordan summers on the keys dan rothschild on the bass jeff perlman on guitar and then later fernando perdomo and that's the the band the house band and andy wants to put together a kind of nameless meaning not a-list jim keltner guys uh but guys that could do these this material justice so he handpicks out of all the musicians in Los Angeles, us five for his own, whatever reasons. And we, uh, start working on this stuff and, and it becomes an album. And in the making of the album, we start, uh, we get Jacob and Dylan involved because Andy was, is still Jacob's manager and managed the wallflowers and signed him to Capitol back in the day. And so now you have a direct lineage to this whole narrative anyway, where, Bob Dylan's son is now singing these songs that are not Bob Dylan songs, but kind of odes to Bob Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> and so it kind of all comes full circle. And then in making the record, then we start doing, uh, Andy starts calling in favors and seeing, would you like to sing on this? Do, do. So that's where it becomes almost like a duets record. So you have Jacob Dylan on every song, but one song that will be singing with cat power, 
or Jade Castrinos or Nora Jones or Fiona Apple or Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age. Neil Young's on a song. And uh, then we, <clears throat> we finished making the record and we're like, let's book a concert in L.A. at one of these cool old theaters and we'll film it and we'll do like a kind of last waltz concert film. Yeah. That ends up being kind of like, you know, maybe we'll put it out on Showtime or have a DVD or something. Just, you know, just a little concert promo thing that, to accompany the record. And we booked two shows in one night at the Olympia Theater in, um, or not the Olympia, the Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles. And it was a great event. We got Fiona out there, Cat Power, uh, uh, Regina Spector, um, and uh, and Beck. Beck's also on the album and the concert. Uh, Beck, who's just, I have a whole new appreciation for him. That guy has an amazing work ethic and knows his history of music. Like, wow, and, that's cool. And he just was eager to like, he's like, can I play guitar on this? And it's like, well, you don't have to because we got three guitar players on stage. He's like, yeah, but I'd really like to. Well, absolutely, sure. <laughs> and he would learn it and do it. And so anyway, so now we have this concert footage. Then Eric Clapton, who's on the album, does a guitar, uh, does a vocal and guitar in one of the songs, Questions, which is an old Buffalo Springfield song. Uh, and he, uh, Clapton wants to be interviewed. So if Clapton calls and wants to be interviewed, we're like, well, <laughs> hell yeah, man. So Andy flies over there, over to England with Jacob, and they interview Clapton. And then Stephen Stills hears that Clapton got interviewed, and he's like, well, I want to be interviewed. <laughs> and so now it, the project turns into something else. It becomes this kind of like interviews, kind of giving the backstory of the scene and the songs and the bands. And then it just takes off on a life of its own. And that's why when people criticize it for not including this or including that, it's like really the narrative was made up as it went. Andy just kind of went with the flow of these interviews. So if, for instance, if Stephen Stills tells a story that involves Roger McGuinn, well, now you got to go talk to Roger McGuinn to get his take on the story, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, combined with these contemporary versions, you know, with these more contemporary artists of this old music, and then it just becomes this really cool-looking, sounding movie that's kind of concert film slash documentary and we the concert footage we really tried to film like our favorite concert movie of all time which is the last waltz mm -hmm. so there's no smoke machines there's no colored lights there's no it's it's kind of similar camera angles for sure it's, it's yeah it's old theater lighting and yeah. so now you have this thing that like uh i don't blame people to criticize it for not having certain information because you know like i said ken burns is a great documentarian anything on pbs that he puts out is a 10-part series and you will learn the full history lesson of whatever genre he's talking about this isn't that this is more of a kind of um 90 minutes of an escape it just like you you watch it with an open mind and you'll hear some cool stories from the people that were there doing it you'll hear their versions our versions shot and and also andy wanted to really revisit some of the last existing studios from that era like sunset sound um uh, uh united western which is now east west um 
capital, uh, you know. So I got to be in a studio with with uh, Brian Wilson right. recording in my room in the yeah. same studio he recorded in my room. He walks, he shuffles in while we're working <laughs> out the song, and he says, "You know, we stop," and he says, um, "This uh, we recorded that song here." Uh, uh, however many years ago with my brothers and my dad and we're like yeah we know like <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's uh, i'm just going to say that he's very delicate mm-hmm. and uh in in his talent is incredibly impressive in his legacy so you're just kind of like bathing in the glory of like uh, okay the modern day mozart just walked in the room like uh i'm just gonna shut up and listen and and play when he's ready to play and that's it your description but, uh, i mean there is a scene in there that that totally embodies that description especially you get there was another beach boy song that you guys were working on and you could tell that that jacob is is uh you know he's like look man this is hey we're working on this song how are you doing what do you want to do and just kind of following his lead and whatever brian feels like doing yeah oh and then he walks in he says it's in the wrong key (laughs) and we're like oh okay uh i don't know if we learned it in the wrong key or if they sped up the tape or i don't for whatever reason we learned it in the wrong key and which is fine for me right right (laughs) Um, but uh you know Instruments like the bass, uh, Eric Paparazzi was there for that day, uh, Cat Power's bass player, and, and he just had to just adapt, and he did an amazing job just right there on the fly. And uh, and so, yeah, it, the whole thing was just a magical thing. And then we've done a lot of, over the last summer, it got released in theaters, so we did a lot of traveling around the country doing promo shows um, with Jacob in the band and sometimes Cat Power or... You know, we did a Hollywood premiere here, and we had Stephen Stills and, and Roger McGuinn. And it was weird playing. Uh, we did Bells of Rimney, which is a bird song by Roger McGuinn. And then we did If I Needed Someone, the Beatles song that uh, that was inspired by it. Oh, cool. And I'm, so I'm, pl- I'm playing a Beatles song with Roger McGuinn, and I look out, and who's sitting right in front of me? But Ringo Starr oh, watching me play his drum part. Oh my gosh. And so, yeah, I mean, it, the whole project had some very magical kind of um, pinch me moments for me. Um, but you can't look at it like that when you're doing it. You just show up and do it like you would anything else, you know, put the same amount of effort in and no more, no less, and, and just enjoy the moment, be in the moment. But, uh, yeah, so that's it. The end result is this, um, movie and now we call it a soundtrack album, even though the album was the thing we first started working on. That's interesting. Uh, uh, but those songs are in the movie. So it it all kind of goes hand in hand. And now it's, it just two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago came out on Netflix. And so now anybody can see it for free. Yeah. I was going to say if, 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 if you haven't seen this, it's just, it's so great. It's so fun. I mean, there were, there were points in which I would go back and, and watch again and certain performances and certain songs. I just had to see again after I watched it. Oh, cool. It. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I've only seen it one time all the way through from beginning to end without stopping. Mm-hmm. But uh, through the course of some of these appearances we've made in different theaters, like they do a, a screening 
then a Q&A with Andy and Jacob, and then the band would play like four or five songs. And we did that a lot all summer. And now that it's on Netflix, I've seen, I've revisited just little scenes because you can watch it that way too. It's not like, you know, but, but making it, recording it was interesting. I, I talked earlier about being a character actor. Yeah. So I, I looked at this album as like a, this is way before there was a movie. It's just the album. I looked at it as being in a, a period piece movie. Mm-hmm. meaning it's it's from this period we're recording it in a home studio of dave ways in laurel canyon or just adjacent to it but you're in that environment and we recorded the whole thing to tape which is never done anymore so it was so cool to hear that like between yeah, right. takes <laughs> you know and and you'd have to transfer the tapes to the you know digital and put another reel on and it was just kind of like old school where you don't just get to punch in stuff and i recorded on a 63 ludwig of dave ways this this gold which is in you'll see in the movie a lot yeah as well as my the concert has my pork pies because they just sounded great in a big theater but the studio stuff's his old 63 ludwigs yes and, and uh so in getting in character i was just thinking these songs meaning buffalo springfield and mamas and papas and first of all a lot of it was hal blaine right uh, and the wrecking crew but even the stuff that wasn't it was the sound of brilliant young musicians that knew their history uh really high so <laughs> you're hearing you're I mean, hearing while they were really high is what you're yeah, saying while they were really high <laughs> because it was late 60s uh, in, in late 60s, before it, the drugs got really dark, you know, and people started dying and stuff, it was just people smoking weed, taking acid or whatever. I mean, I don't do any of that stuff. So I, I had to try to get into the frame of mind of a young musician in the 60s, recording on the tape, really stoned. And uh, because some of the stuff that they would play, I'd be like, that film doesn't even make sense, but it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Or like we did an Arthur Lee and Love song. And I'm like, the drums sound like they're recorded like down the hall. They're so distant and garage trashy sounding, but it's awesome. Mm-hmm. So I just tried to, instead of like copying their fill, we wanted to do justice. We didn't want to remake the songs in a contemporary way. We wanted them to sound 60s. But at the same time, I don't want to, I'm not a cover band drummer, so I don't learn parts note for note. Okay. So I, uh, I mean, I can, but I prefer not to. It's not really fun for me. So I just wanted to get into character and play a fill similar to something that guy would play, but not that fill. You know what I mean? So sure. it was, it was really fun to be involved in. And I ended up, you know, you end up having to play stuff that's not really your style, but yet it's you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's, that's cool. I mean, just embody the, the, the concept and embody the, the style and what the person was going for, as opposed to copying it. Exactly. Yeah. We were trying to cop Mm -hmm. the spirit of it, you know, it'd be true to the spirit of it, but the nuts and bolts of it, it's like, no man, it's like they, I know that the, even the wrecking crew, they would just play stuff. And capture it, capture lightning in a bottle, as they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it wasn't all mapped out note for note. It was just something that, like an idea, how Blaine had, like, why don't we try this? And it, the idea was a good one, turned out, and it worked, and that was the character of the song. And so 
you know, I just try to get, take that spirit of it to the project and not get too uh, belabored with it. Were you guys running a click on this stuff? Um, yes. Okay. Because we knew there was going to be a lot of the guest stars and uh, uh, for editing purposes, it just makes it easier. Although, like I said, I push and pull within the click mm. all the time. You okay. know, I yeah. just, the, the, what we want is the beginning of the song to be the same tempo as the end of the song because you might want to use this verse from this version and this chorus from this version and you edit them together. And so for editing purposes, it just makes life a lot easier. So we did do the click, although not religiously. And, um, and then a lot of the process was done overdub. Like we had the great Lenny Castro come in and do percussion. This yeah, is a guy who's yeah. been on everything. And he gave me the greatest compliment. He was like, this guy sounds like Hal Blaine. I was like, yes, man, that's, that's what I was going for. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's and awesome. I still have never met Lenny. Like we, we, uh, He came in after the fact and added his magic and just kind of made it even more 60s sounding with you know tambourines and things. And If you ever listen to the song Mr. Tambourine Man by the Birds, it's about a guy who plays tambourine and the tambourine track on it is so loose and wacky. Like, <laughs> like you would think you would at least get a stellar tambourine track for a song about a tambourine player. But Dude, that's your only job. That's what you do. I know. I know. It's but, on your yeah, business but, you card. Know, <laughs> but then again, here we are over 50 years later, still talking about it. Yeah, so it's obviously yeah. they had, they did something right. So I love is I have two sons, 14 and 17. And it's so funny to like, Hey, do you know this song? Of course, I've been blabbing about music their whole lives, but I'm like, have you ever heard this song? And they're always, and they're like, yeah, I know that. Like, of course you know that song. I mean, because it's it's still so relevant, even. In and that that's why Ringo's the greatest drummer in the world. There, there you is. go. There you go. <laughs> For that reason. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. I'm going to give you my favorite drummer quote as, a, uh, uh, as I've gotten older. Hmm. Um, well, first, I'll, get, I'll give you two. My first one is... Um, uh, Miles Davis said when he's auditioning drummers, he looked at him like he would judge a boxer. Like I needed, I need a guy who knows how to get out of the way and duck and when to step in and clean up. <laughs> and, and I like that. But my favorite of all time is the, uh, the other great jazz trumpet player, Chet Baker, who said it takes a really good drummer to be better than no drummer at all. Wow. I know. And especially if you're a studio guy and stuff, it, it really tells me that like, if you're going to come to the party, bring something that's essential and important and, and valuable to the party. Don't yeah. just come with your drum set and start banging on stuff because, you know, look, I, I saw the, um, you know, the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The, I saw that whole tour. Uh, cause I was dating 
Johnny Cash's granddaughter at the time, and we, so her mother, uh, Roseanne Cash, and her father, Rodney Crowell, were part of this soundtrack. And mm -hmm. they did a tour. Um, uh, uh, T-Bone Burnett put all the music together. He did a tour with a lot of these artists. So you had people like Allison Krauss in Union Station. You had all these, uh, Del McCrory, all these bluegrass artists. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm seeing it at the Greek theater in LA, which is a pretty big outdoor amphitheater. And there's not a drum on stage and there's so much rhythm going on in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's rhythm going on with, in such a masterful way. These guys are gathered around one mic, a four or five piece band gathered around one mic singing and playing. And it sounds perfect. Like a record. Yeah. These guys have been doing it since they were like toddlers. Yeah. And raised with their it's their instruments have literally been played so much it's changed their body you know <laughs> like <laughs> their fingers grew around these instruments and these you know <laughs> mandolins and banjos and stand-up basses and guitars and, and it's just amazing to watch um but th that just kind of reminded me of like you don't need drums for rhythm in a band you know yeah. um uh so if you're going to show up playing drums don't necessarily look at it as you have to be the timekeeper. You could be the time destroyer. That could be your job. You know, it just you're bringing something special that the song uh, would really benefit from that wouldn't be there if you weren't there. And so that's what you're bringing. And sometimes, like you said, it's just a two and four. Uh, it's just a backbeat. Sometimes it's a swing thing. Sometimes you're pushing the field. You're dragging the field. You're you're doing, or or you're just doing, like Lenny Castro. You're you're bringing in weird colors and shades and and, and uh, emotions, and so it's it's like the coolest instrument ever, really, because there's no rules. It's like it's not like a guitar where like well, more or less it's six strings, you know, and this many frets. And those are your limitations. You can do anything with. And you here's want with that. here's so, the key, and here's the right. Yeah, yeah. But with us, it's like, like I can kick a dumpster, and, and that mm -hmm. can make the track. You know, yeah. like just yeah. uh, so that's like the coolest thing. So I, I love that Chet Baker quote that it takes that's a really good drummer to be better than no drummer at all. <laughs> it's something to remember for sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's incredible. Uh, I want to kind of finish up with one. Uh, other question from Michael Collins. Again, uh, it, uh, a shout out to him for for connecting you with me. And Yay, been, Michael. Yeah, it's been awesome. Um, he, 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 I asked him, I said, hey, man, listen, I'm going to be talking to Matt. Is there any ideas or, or anything you'd like to bring up? And and he said he, he thinks it would be really interesting to hear about the arc of your eclectic body of work. So the the band Dig, Mother Superior, with and oh, then yeah. supporting Henry Rollins. Uh, Echo and the, the all the way to Echo and the Canyon Band and and Sam Morrow who you're working with a lot more recently. See where it's how you've managed to carve out opportunities in these divergent areas. I mean, you know, uh, was it Oprah or some some very more successful person than I said? But success is uh, opportunity meets preparedness. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You know, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. You know, um, uh, I. And I wouldn't say my career has been nonstop success. It's the it's the life of a gambler. You're up one night, you're down the next, and mm -hmm. so you have to have the stomach for that. First of all, yeah. Uh, there's drummers 
in a, a basement or garage right now that are playing things that would blow my mind that, and that uh, could change the world, but they don't have the stomach to hang in there and do the life. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to sacrifice a lot, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so it's, it's, there's a lot of pain involved, but anyway, it, it started with, uh, all right, I'm going to try to make the long story because I'm old. So it's a long story, but I'll try to make it as brief as trying to put it in seven minutes. <laughs> um, anyway, I went, I was such a bad kid. I was getting in trouble with the law and failing in school and all this. And this was in Massachusetts. We lived for a time. And my mom sent me to this little hippie boarding school in Vermont where I basically learned, you know, how to really drink and do drugs, which by the way, I, I haven't had a drink or a drug in over 18 years. So oh, that's, amazing. That's, that's far behind me. But anyway, no judgment, just, you know, do what you got to do. But yeah. Uh, at the time, I was uh, I was a rascal, and I was on acid one night, sitting on the roof because that's the best place to see the stars when you're on acid. Uh, sitting on the roof of the school building, and I hear this music coming from this window, and I pry the window open, and I break in the room, and I I crawl in behind a set of drums, and I pick up the sticks, and I start playing. Now, for years, I always loved music, but I didn't know I could play music because nobody in my neighborhood did. So I thought I was going to grow up and I wanted to be a DJ. I wanted to play records and talk about them. And I didn't know I could actually play on records. And so I started playing drums, and the guy who's playing guitar in the room, who's practicing, he says, "Uh, you're really good. We're going in the studio next week. Would you like to be our drummer on the session and i said oh i'm i'm not a drummer i'm just on acid and he's like well we'll just get more acid then and so that was i did my first session my first week of playing and i uh and then i realized wow i didn't know i could play i thought everybody could sit down in a kit and just play a simple beat yeah turns out it, it's not and and i'm still an awful guitar player i always wanted to play guitar uh, I wanted to be Jimmy Page. <laughs> so um, I'm still a bad guitar player who can play the drums. And I think like a guitar player. I think more than a drummer. Um, so I, uh, I I started practicing and started going around. And at the time, I was going to a lot of dead shows. And so you see those guys play and you realize the freedom that you can do musically. I, I didn't really want to sound like them, but I liked the the freedom of their approach of the Grateful Dead drummers of like you could just bang on anything and get weird and get high and have fun and then I moved back to St Louis where I'm originally from and uh, I was working a night shift at this uh, nightclub uh, being a doorman and I hated it I hated the disco music there or whatever club music they were playing. And I was making money and working all night, coming home at four in the morning and sleeping all day. And I had no friends. And so I was like, you know what? I want to go somewhere. I'd never been anywhere. And so I saved up just a couple grand and went to, uh, planned out this trip, just bought a couple books of backpacking through Africa. I was like, where would I want to go? First of all, I have to go to a third world country because I don't have any money. And it has to be cheap. And second of all, I want to go where drums are. And uh, so I went to Africa and I ended up staying for three months. I went, started in Egypt and made my way down to Kenya. And for three months, I was just playing with tribes. Wow. Uh, uh, you know, camping out at the foot of Kilimanjaro and seeing lions and 
giraffes and zebras and elephants. And, you know, I just had this African experience. And then I came home feeling like, and I'm like 20 at that point. I decided to put together a band and I started asking people in my neighborhood who plays and who's your favorite band and blah, blah, blah. So I started seeing these bands in St. Louis who put together this band and we called it the unconscious and it was handpicked all these different guys that were the fa- my favorite member of each of my favorite local bands, yeah. you know, the, the guitar player from this band, the bass player from this band. And we just had a chemistry and we just started doing it and we didn't know what we were doing. We were awful. I mean, awful looking back, meaning, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Nobody did. And, but they had more experience than me. They, they had played these clubs. So we started playing these clubs and we started kicking ass. We started getting press and we quickly became the, uh, big fish in the small pond, meaning the biggest club band of original music in St. Louis at the time. And we started changing the scene and other bands started coming up and, you know, uh, eventually a band broke up and uh these other bands that we'd influenced became bigger than we were and um and i i had a friend of mine the manager of my band in st louis this guy named chip schloss his brother was xander schloss and xander schloss played with joe strummer played with the circle jerks just plugged into the la music scene so xander's like come on out play with my band the two free stooges and uh and the punk band the weirdos they need a drummer they're one of the first la punk bands it's like the germs the weirdos and so i'm like it's not really my style of music but uh, i need a gig and la sounds great yeah uh in the meantime i uh the band red cross comes through town and they have the great jack irons on drums who was the original chili peppers drummer he hears me play a, uh, with my band and he says you should come out and audition for red cross because my band 11 is getting signed you know, and then Jack later ended up with Pearl Jam. And so I come out and I'm in the middle of the scene now. And my first show at Club Laundry on Sunset Boulevard, I look out and there's the members of Fishbone and Chili Peppers standing in the front row with their arms folded. Like, like who's this guy? And I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. Like, these are guys that I used to go see because yeah. I wasn't a punk. I wasn't a punk rocker, but I was a club goer. And there were certain bands that were kicking ass in the clubs back then. And the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Fishbone were definitely two of them. You know, and Soundgarden and all these bands at the time. This is the late 80s, early 90s. So now I'm in L.A. in the 90s. And as decadent as that gets, uh, probably the reason I'm sober now is because a lot of people didn't make make it through L.A. in the 90s. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. uh, so I fell prey to a lot of that same, to those trappings, even though I was the kid sitting in the middle of the kitchen on his practice pad while all this debauchery was going around me at the party, I held firm to my Midwest values and like, no, I'm here to drum. I'm not here to get strung out on heroin or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one thing leads to another and uh, and that stuff happens. But in the meantime, I ended up, you know, playing these punk shows. Uh, I'm not a punk rocker. And I'm like, I had to figure it out. Like, like I figure anything out, like what's the essence of this? What's the spirit of this? I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not. So I'm going to bring me to the party, but try to cop the spirit of what this music needs. And you end up learning a lot. And then I end up doing more like heavy stuff and metal stuff. And, uh, then I get in this band dig, I get a call for them and they had a huge MTV hit and we do, um, uh, that's the, at the time when everybody in the 90s is getting a huge record contract. We were signed to uh, 
what the hell were we signed to? I can't even remember at the time. Was it Universal or? Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, Universal. And so uh, bands got huge record deals. They were forcing you basically to spend a half a million dollars making your record. Uh, that was 90s big label money. And then dropping you if it didn't sell a million copies yeah, just as quickly. So I went through that experience with Dig. It was great. We did one tour. We did an amazing sounding record. Tom Lord Algae mixed it. I mean, it was like it was in A&M Studios in Ocean Way. And it was my first like foray into these big Hollywood studios and these giant rooms and you could rent anything you want. If you want a, a timpani drum at three in the morning, you just call up SIR and they'll bring it, you know, <laughs> yeah. just charge it to the label. And so that was great. But that whole scene didn't last long. Of course, Napster comes along, changes the whole, you know, music industry. And then, uh, uh, then things got dark and then I got sober and things got better. And I called up Keith Morris, the singer, uh, original singer of Black Flag and singer of the Circle Jerks, kind of the granddaddy of punk rock in L.A. And I said, Keith, I just want to let you know I was making my rounds, calling everybody I knew that was a musician, said, I'm sober now, a couple years, I'm ready to get out there, get on the road, do whatever it takes. So I'm just putting it out there. But if you hear of anything, I'm ready. Yeah. And a month or two later, I get a call from Mother Superior saying, hey, Keith Morris, We've been working with him, doing a Black Flag reunion, and our drummer just quit, and we'd like you to audition for us. And I went in there and played with him one day, and auditions were over. Like, we just clicked. Nice. And they were the Rollins band, so they had that heaviness, which a lot of people don't know about Henry, but his favorite band was Thin Lizzy. So it wasn't even it wasn't even punk rock. It was what we called heavy soul. It was the sound of like... African-American soul music played through Marshall Stacks. So think the MC5, you know. Uh, so uh, this kind of like 70s hard rock, Humble Pie, you know, ACDC was all, wasn't metal. Yeah. But it was as heavy as metal. It was just kind of soul. And uh, I did that. And then through that, Daniel Lanois and all that. And uh, I did that for about seven years. Uh, we toured the world and did three, four records and um, that I got out of that. And I decided, you know what? I want to join a band. I started praying. I want to join a band that my mom could enjoy because Mother's <laughs> Prayer was way too scary for my mom <laughs> and loud. And uh, although I was in great physical shape, I'd come home from tours like, like you know, I'd come from training camp. Right. And I had these shoulders and the chest. It was like, wow, man. And uh, – I get a call from uh, Alligator Blues soul R&B singer, Janova Magnus. And uh, so I, I, now I'm in a suit gig where we wear black suits. We play Stax Motown chess record style, like old blues, where I had to really develop my two-handed Texas shuffle. Yeah. Where yeah. you're shuffling on the, uh, the cymbal and the snare at the same time. Yes. And, and there's a real art to that. That mm -hmm. one was the shuffling with the left hand. Like I do a lot of ghost notes, but it's more like Bernard Purdy, Levon Helm kind of, you know, uh, ghost little rolls. But then like, that kind of, we call it the flat tire shuffle. Sounds like yeah. you're driving with a flat tire. And um, Chris Layton and has a really good, that, that. Her, he's a master mm -hmm. of 
as far as white guys go, I don't mean to sound racist, but like <laughs> no, he's, he's, hey man. Uh, he's a uh, Texas yeah. boy. He, he knows is. how to do it. Yeah. And he, uh, uh, he, he really gets it right. Uh, because most of the time you got to go to these old records to really hear it right. And, and those old records, a lot of the times the drums aren't recorded that well. So it's not very clear what they're doing, but you know it when you find it. Right. And it's, it's a real f- unique feel where you're kind of, the time is surging and dragging and surging and dragging within the measure. You know, you're not, it's, it's, it's a certain kind of lope to it. That's, uh, you know, like I said, you know, when you find it, and so does the band, everybody turns to each other and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This that's is awesome. It. Yeah. So I, I did that for about seven years and that was great training camp of backing up a real like singer, like, uh, the subtle, the, it, dynamics is everything. That's another thing these flashy drummers don't get as much as dynamics. doesn't mean just getting loud and getting soft. It means like one limb will get soft here Mm -hmm. and loud here. Mm -hmm. And, and you really, it's these internal dynamics and, and how to punch a phrase of a singer. If she's, you know, she's going to deliver this word and this word is important to the song. So you really support that word and, and punch it. And, and so that really helped uh, a lot, train me to do that and to watch her body language, to know when you're in the pocket. And then uh, that ended uh, just because I'd done it for seven years and I needed a change. And that's when the Echo in the Canyon thing started. Meanwhile, I'm doing sessions and gigs, pick up things with all kinds of artists all the time anyway for the last 30 years. So these are just kind of my main sure, gigs. Sure, sure. And I start working with Sam Morrow, uh, who I've known since he's young guy. He's, I think he's only 28 now, but I've known him since he was like 20. Great singer-songwriter, kind of outlaw country. Uh, and he's uh, he likes country music. And I said, look, I love country music. It's, it's some of the greatest American songwriting. Uh, and But as a drummer, I love Merle Haggard. But I would shoot myself if I had to play Merle Haggard drums night after night after night. <laughs> it's just, it, it's just for me personally, it's sure. not that interesting yeah. to play. I, I love to listen to it. I just yeah. don't want to play it. Uh, I'll, I'll get a backache just doing that. And uh, so I told him, "Have you checked out like Little Feet? It's like country influence, but yeah. Richie Hayward, man. I've yeah. stolen more. I've stolen as much from Richie Hayward as I have any other drummer. You know, it's awesome." Uh, because he does that New Orleans thing, he does that country thing, he does that funk thing, mm-hmm. does that rock thing. It's it's really cool and and almost prog at times, you know, with different time signatures. And so Sam really dove into the whole Lowell George Little Feet thing, and so now we have a sound that's kind of Lowell George meets Merle Haggard meets Almond Brothers meets T Rex. It's just this hybrid. Outlaw country, I guess they call it. Yeah, I've checked out some of this stuff. It's it's really cool, man. You sound great on it, and, and it's, oh, thanks. Yeah, man. it's it's good stuff. And then you know the Echo in the Canyon thing, and, and all that's led to me. You know, it, it got me. Uh, I did a couple shows, did a handful of shows with Cat Power on her own, and done some sessions with her. Work on Jade Castrino's album from Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros because she's part of that project. And so it's just you know what I've learned. In this business, is one phone call can change the rest of your life, and you never know when it's going to come. So just stay ready and stay positive, and, and love 
what you're doing. My, my, the greatest advice I got when I was first got sober, I was kind of freaking out my first sober gig. I was pacing in the parking lot, just way self-conscious. Like I was conscious of what my hands were doing. Should I fold them? Should I put them in my pocket? I was just, I was just weird and raw emotionally. And I called, uh, this guy who helped me out, he was the bass player of Jane's Addiction, Eric Avery. And Eric was also sober. He wouldn't mind anybody knowing that. And I said, Eric, what did you do when you first played sober with Jane's Addiction as a band of drug addicts? And you, all of a sudden, you're the one who's not on drugs. Like hmm. He said, I realized how big the stage was, first of all. It's like <laughs> I, used to just pl- uh, I used to just play by my amp and be in that little world. And I realized I can walk up, up to the front of the stage and, and engage, and connect with people. He's like, now, you don't have that freedom because you're an instrument. But yeah. he said, um, stay in the moment. Don't worry about the note you just played, like if you blew it, uh, and don't worry – don't think too far ahead about what you're going to play. Don't think two bars ahead. Like just think of the note you're playing and the exact next note you have to play and try to train your mind to stay in the moment. Right. And also enjoy every note. Like really try to find joy in every note you're playing. Mm. And that was great advice that still carry me on till I die, you know. Just reconnecting with why you love music in the first place. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's it's amazing, man. I mean, because so many people they discover music and then they they fall into some of those dark trappings, like you mentioned. But what's what's interesting about your story is is it starts there. It almost starts like you drop acid, and then next thing you know, you're like, "Hey, look, drums." Huh. As opposed to the other way around. So, I mean, dude. that's when I talk when I talk to people like addicts and stuff because mm-hmm. I will help people and visit rehabs and try to just that's get great. back. It's great. And, um, I say to them, I, it, it, I would be full of shit if I were to say, you know, like those people that were smokers and then they quit smoking and then all they do is preach about uh, how clean they are and how smoking's bad. It's like, that's nothing more annoying than that. So I said, look, drugs and alcohol are great. They do exactly what you want them to do. And I would, I would recommend anybody do them if it's working for them. But uh, a drug or alcohol problem is different. Mm. And drugs and alcohol never enhanced or made anything better other than the way I feel. They never actually made a situation better or a song better. Mm-hmm. or anything. They made me feel better uh, or different. But uh, it's a false reality you're creating. And sometimes you got to visit it. You know, everybody, life is all about little escapes, whether it's working out or going on vacation or sex or whatever, you know. So these are other little escapes, but yeah. turns out they're dangerous and can kill you. <laughs> but yeah. I, I tell them, I said, look, I'm not anti-drug and alcohol because I wouldn't have the career I have if it wasn't for drugs and alcohol. They literally gave me a career. Uh, but it, it just as soon robbed me of it as well. Yeah. And so, so I'm very lucky to have survived it. But uh, do what you got to do. I just, um, I'm here to help if you need it and you yeah. want it. This has been awesome, man. I, I couldn't have anticipated uh, getting into some territory that we did. Oh, thanks so much. Because honestly, when have I ever had the, uh, a chance to talk like this for an hour plus about this stuff? Never. Right. And my girlfriend doesn't want to hear it. Like, you know. <laughs> and my bandmates, yeah, we, we talk about this stuff in the van. 
But yeah. like, uh, this has been a very unique opportunity for me, and uh, I hope people dig it, or you know, whoever yeah. has the yeah. tenacity to stay with it. But yeah, I thought we co- I covered a lot of ground, and I'm really happy to do it. And thank you for the opportunity. Of course, man. Well, it's been a joy to get to know your playing and and get to know you now. Uh, in conversation and again thanks to Michael Collins for connecting us yes thank you so much again for thank you taking the time to do this all right man talk to you soon thanks Matt talk to you bye 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 so there you go my conversation with Matt Techue again thanks so much to Michael Collins for connecting us I encourage you to check out this documentary Echoes in the Canyon on Netflix it's just some great footage of the concert I was also able to find the uh, soundtrack to that and my family's been listening to that it's really great matt is just he's just got a great touch and we got into a little bit of that as far as tone and ideas and it's just so helpful especially when you're in the studio to bring those elements to the table and i appreciate matt kind of expanding upon some of those concepts Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Gerard Sullivan of the Fusion Group for Corners. If you recall our contest back in October where we were asking our listeners to leave a rating and review for us on our different platforms like iTunes and Stitcher and Facebook, we had a winner, Aaron Rosner from Minneapolis, Minnesota. We appreciate him so much and everyone that contributed their ratings and reviews of this podcast. If you like what we're doing and you want to support what we're doing, This is one way that you can leave a rating and review. It helps get the word out and helps us grow. There's another way that you can support the podcast through Patreon, patreon.com slash working drummer. Go check that out. There's exclusive content for our Patreon members. Most recently, we have an almost an hour tutorial that was put together by our friend Brian Stevens. It's a tutorial all about preparing for the studio and how to listen and assess your recording chops. It's it's so well done and so well produced. We thank Brian for that. But for as little as a dollar a month, you can access this and many of the other educational content that we have on our Patreon page. But as always, I thank you so much for listening and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.